0: Lewis is having a good day. You know, he has those bad days and he's writing about it. He's having a good day. And he says, you know, God's not been trying an experiment on my faith or my love in order to find out their quality. He knew that already. It was I who didn't. In this trial... He makes us occupy the witness stand. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We are going to be in the books of Nahum and Habakkuk. Now, every time I get to Habakkuk, I remember one of my favorite stories from high school. I went to a Christian, I graduated from a Christian high school. We had Bible class and we had one student who sat in our senior Bible class and slept almost every class. And he must have had his head down on the table of contents of his Bible, because what I remember is somewhere in the middle of class, he his eyes, uh, his head raises up, his eyes begin to you know slowly form as he's looking at what's in front of him, and he goes, Habuka Kook. <laughs> Who's Habuka Kook? That was right in the middle of class. <laughs> This word Habakkuk is always a fun one to try to spell, right? And we're going to talk about Nahum and Habakkuk. There was no more dreaded nation in the 8th century BC than Assyria. And when Jonah went to the capital city of Nineveh, he announced that God was going to bring judgment on this wicked, evil sadistic, heartless, pagan nation. And he did it with a little bit of glee. But the most remarkable and unusual thing happened. Two things. Number one, out of nowhere, this wicked, evil, pagan king who doesn't even know God's name, repents. And second, The God of justice, the God of high standards, the God who can be trusted, decided to save this wicked, evil, pagan, no good, very bad nation. And Jonah, whose name means dove, throws a wicked temper tantrum. That God, by his very nature, is so merciful and kind, slow to anger, forgiving left and right, and abounding in loving kindness. But that's not the only Nineveh story in the Old Testament. Their repentance, or whatever you want to call it, was short lived. Just one or two generations later, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them into captivity. And they don't stop their military campaign for another 50 years until they extend the borders of Assyria all the way to Thebes, Egypt. Less than a century after Jonah, the lonely nation of Judah sits scared, and alone and vulnerable facing the menacing force of Assyria. And this time, God declares through his prophet Nahum that Nineveh will not survive when Jehovah God comes down from his mountain and pours out his wrath like fire. Now, it might seem strange to you That God would deliver this message of fiery wrath through a prophet whose name means comfort. Of course, Jonah's name meant dove, so I guess it doesn't, doesn't count. But Nahum's message really is a message of comfort. If you've ever been the victim of a heinous crime, and then the law courts do their thing and justice is served, there's a sense of comfort that comes from that. If you've ever been under the threat of a storm, and somehow, somewhere, someone removes the storm, that's comfort. And Nahum begins by declaring that God, in Nahum 1 and verse 3, Nahum is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and is a refuge for all who trust him. Nahum begins by saying, Jonah was right on this. But, keep reading chapter 1. And it turns out that when God decides to comfort and protect his people from the threat all around, it will feel like the wrath of God. And that's why in chapter 1 and verse 15, Nahum says that when God's people are protected, that is peace and comfort from God. We find the exact same language in the New Testament. Remember that passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul says, the Lord's coming back with flaming vengeance on those who deserve it, those who have accepted the life outside of Christ. Flaming vengeance. But it's interesting that the way he words it is, he's going to bring all of this on them. But in the same breath, he says, the coming of the Lord in flaming fire and vengeance also brings rest rest for us. That's another word for comfort, another word for peace. How does the coming of God in flaming vengeance mean rest and comfort for the rest of us? And the answer is because he removes the threat. And all that's left is peace, peace, peace. In chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, Paul said, You know, you all used to worship idols, but you've turned from the worship of idols to the worship of the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see the language there that there's a hopeful message even in the midst of the storm of Nahum. You realize that Assyria, they saw themselves as the powerful lion, way at the top of its perch, like the king of beasts. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he'll come down and, like a lion and feast on his prey. Take a picture, take a look at some of the pictures of ancient Assyria, and you'll see how the metaphor fits. But in a world where you feel like you're Pray for the king of beasts. It's helpful to know that on your side is the creator of all beasts, the creator of all life. So what's the result of reading Nahum? Well, you can trust the Lord, your God. He's your refuge. He was willing to relent and save even a wicked nation if they were willing to seek peace and show a change of heart. But now that they're bent on destroying those whom God promised to protect, you can trust that God is your citadel, he's your fortress, he's your refuge. Sounds good. And then we get to Habakkuk, or Habukuk for, for some. By the time of Habakkuk, Nahum's prophecy had been fulfilled. It turns out that Assyria, high on its perch, thinking it owned the world, got brought down because God raised up another nation to take Assyria's place known as Babylon. And Babylon takes over Assyria and it asserts itself as the eminent world power. Assyria got what was coming to them. But Habakkuk looks all around. And it's, it's sad, isn't it, that sometimes the, the great problems out there end up in some ways just feeling like a mirror to the great problems inside. And so he cries out to God, says, God, you've got a problem on your hands. The problem is, I know the world is evil. I know they're all going after their own way, but your own people are complicit. And when your own people are complicit, it makes you look bad. And so I need you to fix this problem, fix the sin and wickedness that's all around us. and It's tempting your people. And so could you fix that? And God says, sure. I will judge my people for their iniquities. And I am raising up Babylon to come and take over my people and teach them a lesson. Anything else I can do for you? That's my paraphrase. And Habakkuk comes back shocked and says, yes, now you've got two problems on your hands. (laughs) How is this right? How is this just? How is this going to help your reputation? How is this good? How is this keeping your promise to Israel? How is this being faithful? How, How can this be? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like there's moments in your life when you feel caught between a rock and a hard place and it's just impossible to know what in the world you're supposed to do and you cry out to God and either he seems silent or complicit in the problems you're feeling and experiencing. I read Habakkuk when I was working on a sermon on Habakkuk When I was 19 years old, and at the same time that I was working on this sermon on Habakkuk, I was reading a book for school by C.S. Lewis, and it was a book that you may have never heard before. It is my favorite C.S. Lewis book. It's called A Grief Observed. I'll tell you why it's my favorite Lewis book. Most of his other books, well, he wrote lots of different kinds of things. I didn't read the fiction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who cares about Narnia? Uh, I'm kidding. Don't throw anything. Um, among his nonfiction works, most of them are you know, Christian apologetic books. This isn't like that. doesn't read like that at all. And those are great. It doesn't read like that at all. You know what this is? It's something like a diary where he's writing his thoughts and feelings because he waited forever to get married. And then he got married, and there's some stories about what all that was about, whether that was uh, uh, out of love or because he was trying to help somebody with a green card. There's a long story behind that. But he ends up falling in love with his wife. It's always a good thing to do. And then she dies of cancer. He had already written the book, The Problem of Pain. He had already written the answer book to how to deal with pain. Pain. And now he's experiencing it. And that book reads very different than this book. And what I love about it is it's so raw. You ever write in a diary yourself and you'll find you said something on one page last night and your tone and attitude is quite different this morning? That's what every page reads like in this book. I want to give you a quote. Meanwhile, where is God? This is the most disquieting symptom. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in time of trouble? It's not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The book gets better. But do you hear the rawness in the story? God, I want to believe. I've written the books on it. It's not that I doubt you're there. It's just I'm starting to think such terrible things about you. Habakkuk is faced with that situation. God, I know you're there. I've seen what you've done, and I know you're raising up that army, and you've got the power to do it. But now, now I've got all the problems I had and then some. What am I, and what are they supposed to think of you? In the same book, Lewis says, Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion. I'll listen submissively, but don't come talking to me about how the religion consoles me. If you do, I'll suspect that you don't understand. In other words, I don't find comfort. The book of Nahum has already told us that God will and does provide comfort. Habakkuk's having a hard time finding it, and Lewis is right there with him. And so God, in his tender love, doesn't leave Habakkuk in the dark. He answers, wait, wait. You don't see the end of the story. You don't see all the chess moves. In fact, you don't see the whole board. So let me let you in on just a little bit. Number one, I am going to let Babylon get what's coming to them. This is not the end of their story. Number two, I'm not giving up on my people. This is not the end of your story. I'm teaching them a lesson, and it's going to be good for them. I know what I'm doing. Oh, and number three, I'm God. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before Him. And in chapter three, Habakkuk writes out a prayer. I don't know how long it took him to write it. I don't know if he tried to just say it to himself to keep some silence, but he writes out a prayer. And in this prayer, he says, I get it. He reflects on how good God has been to his people, how there's been a long history of God at work. And it seems like every time it looked like things weren't going to go right, whatever happened ended up being for their benefit. And God always delivered. There's a psalm where David says, My feet had almost slipped. I I know that God is good to Israel, but I looked around and I saw what was happening in the rest of the world and how wonderful they were doing and how bad we were doing, and my foot almost slipped. And then David says, but then I walked into the sanctuary of God, and there I remembered. Your hand always upholds me. The Lord is good to those who seek him. Habakkuk says, I thought about it, and I remembered You've never let me down. And he comes to a conclusion. Comfort doesn't come from my understanding. It doesn't come from when all the God's people do exactly everything right. Comfort doesn't isn't found when everybody when everything turns out the way that I think it should. Comfort and security are only found in God, who never fails never disappoints and is never wrong. I told you I was reading Lewis's book the same time I was working through Habakkuk 19. I'm sure that God put this together for me because I needed to write a lesson and I was a little late getting my lesson together. And it was Saturday night and I got to this part of the book. Lewis is having a good day. You know, he has those bad days and he's writing about it. He's having a good day. And he says, You know, God's not been trying an experiment on my faith or my love in order to find out their quality. He knew that already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the witness stand. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. I don't know why Joy Davidson Lewis died. I don't know where to put the blame on that. I don't know God's role in that. But I do know this, all things work together for good, for those that love the Lord. And what Lewis is saying is, I had my hope and my trust and my confidence in this relationship. And now that that's gone, the only place I can find those is in you. And maybe that's what I need. Habakkuk steps back, and he sees the world from a different perspective. What do we do with Nahum and Habakkuk when we see evil all around us? Is God going to destroy the perpetrators like he did to Nineveh under Nahum? He might do that. Or is he going to show mercy like he did to Nineveh under Jonah? He might do that. When we see trouble in our own ranks, temptation full blown, will God provide cleansing and healing and hope like He has so many times in history? He might do that. Or will he allow us to experience a period of judgment so that by facing up to the consequences of our sin, we'll learn a lesson and maybe our children and grandchildren will learn from that and live a different life so that God may continue to bless? That might be the case. But whatever he does, he loves his people and he wants everything to work together for good. Do we trust Him? Comfort and security will not be found in understanding. It won't be found in everything happening the way we think it should. For we don't see the whole board. Comfort and security will be found in knowing that God is in His holy temple. One that can't be knocked down. Therefore, let all the earth keep silence before him. Where's the gospel in all of this? Oh, I feel it just bursting out of every verse. God is at work. And whatever he does is bigger and larger than any story that I could deliver. And everything he does is working out of a bigger, larger story that's leading to a conclusion in which he makes everything better. I don't understand science like I wish I did. Steve Moore, I regret to tell you this. I was a terrible science student. But I've been told that water can cleanse or destroy. Fire can cleanse or destroy. And I don't always know how to interpret what we face. But if we'll allow it, we can see in everything that happens an opportunity for the world to become better. It's All in how we see it. God sometimes gives us glimpses of destruction and judgment, but they're not for all generations. And even if it ends up destroying your life or taking your life, this life is not the end of your story. Sometimes it gives glimpses of salvation and hope and redemption, but people still die. These are only signposts. The big story, the big conclusion is waiting. And Isaiah talks about it, and Ezekiel talks about it, and Revelation talks about it, and they say, it's going to be great. I believe the story culminates in Jesus Christ. And in the cross, we see that God's wrath will bring an end to sin, and God's hopeful, faithful, merciful love will bring hope, even to those who at this time have no idea that the offer is even to them. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.